0: Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. So, in retrospect, I should have been able to detect that this was not going to end well based solely upon the other parents gathering their children and helping move them out of the play place at Chick-fil-A. They were going around going, come on kids, let's get out of here, like as I was coming in. We were all there, all of us at Chick-fil-A, six people in my family. One evening my wife looked across the table at me and said, do you think it's creepy that they all know our names? And I said, I think the emotion that you're searching for is shame, because we were there so often, like they got To know us is the perfect place to be, though. We could eat, they could play, we could sit, we could catch up. And this one particular night, I went into the play place because I saw my son, my oldest, Benjamin, standing on top of a plastic yellow oval that he was not supposed to be on top of, by the way. And I went in there and he's standing on top of it. It's about waist high, comes off the ground. And he wanted to see, I could see what was going through his brain. He wanted to see if he could launch himself off of the oval and grab the pipe that was hanging indiscriminately from the ceiling, not connected to the apparatus. This was not a part of the apparatus but it was still there and he still wanted to see if he could do it and to be honest I did too I was curious which explains why the parents were ushering their children out of the play place they knew something bad was about to go down and I'm not quite as quick as them so I'm like oh boy we got the whole place to ourselves Ben and he's standing atop of this thing And he's getting ready to to make the jump, and he does it. He launches himself off, and he grabs a hold of the pipe, and he hangs there. And I am so impressed. I'm like, you did it. And he's like, yeah. And then he looks down and realizes the distance between him and the ground is something he's going to have to cross. He sees how far he is from where he needs to be, and it's overwhelming, and it's scary, and it has a lot to do with the story we're going to look at this morning. Some of these parables that we look at, these stories that Jesus would tell, show us how far we are from where we need to be. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming. It can even feel painful. This is too far a bridge to divide, to cross, right? We're not going to get there. And sometimes we read it and it blows us away because it's like, I just don't have what it takes to make it there. It shows us the ideal and it shows us how far we are from that ideal. And that's sort of the point of some of these stories. If you have your Bible, the one we're going to look at this morning occurs in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. We have them scattered all throughout the room. Lots of people are ready and willing and able to get you a Bible. If you have a device, you can use it. We encourage you to turn off the notifications. I believe that there is an enemy who's looking to distract you from what you're about to look at. And uh, and with the phone, like if you're reading it on your phone, it feels like sometimes, I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, I certainly do, you pull out your phone to read the Bible, and it's just like, man, all of a sudden all these notifications start coming. It's like the enemy is trying to get your mind off of what you're about to look at, right? We uh, made a decision several weeks back that We're going to put the references on the screen, but not the actual verses, because we want to be people who just who look in this book. I want you to see it for yourself. I want all of us to be able to learn how to use it. Um, many of us don't use it that much anymore, and I feel like, man, let's get back to that. Let's start going back to using this book. We'll go slow and tell you how to get places. Matthew is the first gospel, first book of the New Testament. You can use your table of contents if you need to, and it's 20 chapters in. It's all all pretty easy. If you're joining us online, we want to say a special word of greeting to you as well. We also, Milo, we want to say hi to you. We're praying for you as a church. Yeah, you guys can make some. Yeah, so he couldn't be with us in person today, but he called me last night and he goes, I will be watching. You know, like he's got that low, as like it sounded scary, so I was like, I better say hi. Um, so there you go, Milo. Uh, we miss you and we look forward to seeing you Soon, These parables are stories that Jesus would tell. Parables are are descriptions of God's kingdom in this world. God's rule and reign among us here and now. We often think of the kingdom of God as something that's in the future, and it is. But Jesus was also planting the first fruits of it in the here and now. And he describes what the kingdom is like through story. You may remember when we first started looking at these stories several weeks back, we said when Jesus would roll through a village, when he would come through a town, when the J train would roll up, they had a three-act performance. Act one was performing a miracle. Somebody was going to get healed. Someone who was blind was going to get sight. Someone who was lame was going to be able to walk. He would perform a miracle, and then all eyes would be on him, which would bring Act 2. Act 2 was the declaration, the kingdom of God has arrived based on the fact that I just healed a guy. Somebody who couldn't walk now is walking. Someone who was dead in some cases is now alive. I performed a miracle and now I'm using that miracle as evidence for the arrival of God's kingdom here and now. And people would go, What is that kingdom like? And he'd say, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you a story. That was Act 3. Jesus would use these stories to describe what it was like when the, when the Lord was sitting on the throne of our lives, right? When he was the king of our hearts. Even in the middle of this broken land, we can have access to a new kingdom with a new king. And Jesus would describe what that was like through stories. Many of you who grew up in the church, maybe you've heard of parables as sort of um, these tales or, or maybe fables that tell us didactically how to live. And they are that, but that's not the point of them, right? The point of them is to describe God's kingdom, which does inform how we live if we want to participate in what he's already doing, but it's a byproduct. It's not the goal of it. The goal of it is to tell you what the kingdom of God is like, and then he tells a story to help you see that. And if you want to participate in what God is doing and what he's doing right here and now... This is how you participate, because this is what it's like. That was a lot of time to buy you to open up to Matthew chapter 20. So let's drop in. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing He told them, you also go work in my vineyard. I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon, and he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. Lord Jesus, thank you for this story. God, you preserved this story for us for 2,000 years so that we could look at it today and be challenged by it. So, we ask for the ability to focus right now. Speak and change us. Thanks for your word. Jesus, we pray this in your name, amen. Some of you may remember that Christy and I just returned from a trip to Rwanda where we flew in some, I mean, we flew a long time on that airplane. Some of you have been checking in this week going, have you adjusted? I think I've adjusted. I feel much better. What I didn't know, I've never crossed the Atlantic before, maybe some of you have, Crossing the Atlantic is a big deal, like in a plane, right? It's like eight hours to go across from Atlanta. We flew to Amsterdam and it took eight hours, but what I didn't know, and maybe you know this too, what I found out the hard way is that coming back across from Amsterdam to Atlanta, takes two more hours. Like, it's even longer. I was like, it's the same distance. That doesn't make any sense to me. What I found out is that there's this headwind, and it's blowing 100 miles an hour against the plane, and it adds a couple of hours, and I'm sitting in this giant tube, and I'm getting so restless, and it's hard to sit still for that long, because you're, you know, you're confined with all these other people, and it was fine. I was trying, like, with all that was within me to not act Spoiled or entitled, right? Because flight is a miracle, and sometimes we don't recognize it as such. There was a couple of times in the trip where I said to Christy, I was like, call me out when I start acting entitled, right? Because we can do that without recognizing it. We're sitting on the plane, and it took about 30 extra minutes for it to take off. And while I'm sitting there, I'm going, okay, God, help me to see this through the proper lens. Crossing the Atlantic used to be a much bigger deal. Like, I'm acting like it's a big deal because it takes like eight hours. It used to be it would take like eight months, right? You would go in a boat, and there would be people on the boat that you didn't know, and the people you brought with you might die on the way, right? And then a whole other group of people could be born. It could be an entirely different group of people. When you arrive, this wasn't that long ago. I'm sitting there, and I'm going, okay, I need to just for a second be able to get in my head the miracle of what I'm participating in right now. Flight is a miracle. I'm going, okay, I'm sitting in a chair in space, right, First, going 600 miles an hour while people come around and give me food, right? That is it. That's a pretty great arrangement. Like, it's not, it's not something to be overlooked. Like, this is miraculous. There was one point in the flight where, uh, <laughs> where where they come on the thing, and they're like, hey, big news, good news, we now have Wi-Fi that you can connect to, right, which is amazing, like, because, you know, it used to be, it still probably is, that you had to put it on airplane mode, you know what I'm talking about, like, you had to put, it, they're like, get out your phone and put it on airplane mode, or else we're all gonna die, you know, and you're like, we're just, nobody's following up, like, no, nobody's trusting We're just all trusting that everybody's going to put it on airplane mode. Like That made me uncomfortable, right? Um, And so I didn't just to see what would happen. You know, I didn't put it on airplane mode. And then they're like, hey, good news. We have Wi-Fi now. And if you want to connect to the Wi-Fi, you can. It costs money to surf or stream. But if you want to use it for messages, that's free. And I'm like, perfect. Because I wanted to text my wife how uncomfortable I was. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to connect to it long enough to be like, I'm sitting in between two overweight people and I'm smushed, you know, and it wouldn't work, we were somewhere near Greenland, I think, like, we were somewhere over the Atlantic, and I couldn't connect to the Wi-Fi, and they came on the intercom again, and they're like, hey, bad news, we were just kidding about the Wi-Fi working, you know, and the guy next to me smacks his laptop shut, and is like, it's stupid, you know, it's like, He's a, I'm like, dude, it's a miracle, what's happening, we're going 600 miles an hour in a chair, Over the ocean, a lady just brought you food. He's like, yeah, but I can't text my wife. You know, like, come on. We can act so entitled. And I think we're swimming in it. We don't even realize how entitled we are sometimes. And sometimes it takes getting alone with this book to remind ourselves, like, okay, you are blind to how entitled you're being right now. You know, Jesus tells this story to help us see it which is a miracle in itself. And the context of it leading up to it, you can see it even more clearly when you look at the context of this parable. So going back just a little bit, let's, let's jump on back to Matthew chapter 18. So if you've got your thumb in 20, just flip back two chapters. You'll notice it starts verse one of 18. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? Which is such a funny question. We can almost overlook it. They're like, hey, I'm going to be top of the list, right? Like, I'm in, when you bring this kingdom, I want to make sure that I have rank, that I have status, that I have posture, that people recognize me. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about in the kingdom that I'm bringing? Look at verse 2. He calls a little child over to him, which is funny because children in that culture had zero identity. They didn't even name them until they were a couple weeks old because they might die. They were seen as vulnerable and weak, and so children just didn't carry any value, and Jesus calls a child over to him, verse 2, places the child among them, and he goes, unless you change and become like a little child, you're not going to enter the kingdom. So Jesus is going, this kingdom that I'm bringing has a complete different set of values in it. You're concerned about rank, you're concerned about identity, but I'm telling you, unless you become one of these children, you can't get in. So it goes on from there. Matthew 19, you skip on down. Uh, verse 1, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So you see there are a couple of things. Verse 1, they're testing him. They're trying to trap him in something, right? And then they're also asking, hey, can divorce people be in your kingdom? Because they want to know who's in and who's out. This is the same question. Like, the first one was like, okay, am I going to have rank? The second one is, okay, okay, but those other people, like, they're out, right? Because I don't want to, you know, we don't, we don't need too many people in our kingdom, right? They're trying to figure out who's in and who's out. And <laughs> What's so funny is that there are two schools of thought in this day and age about divorce. This is just sort of interesting. The first school um, was something called the school of Rabbi Shammai, and it understood that sexual immorality was the only valid reason for divorce. So some kind of, um, um, some cheating, right, would be a reason for divorce. But there was this other rabbi called Hillel that understood any sort of indiscretion as being grounds for divorce. Y'all, they were teaching in that day and age that if your wife burned your breakfast, I'm not making this up if she burned your breakfast that was grounds for divorce yeah I ran into a fellow yesterday who was like I burned my wife's toast this morning I'm like I think you might get like she might be able to leave you like I mean according to Rabbi Hillel he's like does it work the reverse way I was like I don't know but I'll find out right so in their question the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to, to side with one teaching or the other. They want to know who's in and who's out. And Jesus in his is uh, so good. What he returns them to is marriage. They're asking about divorce, and he's pointing them to marriage. He goes, you guys are getting caught up in, in who's in and who's out, but what I'm trying to, to show you is that like God, God created marriage. Like I don't want to talk about divorce, I want to talk about marriage. And they continue to try to get him to say who's in and who's out. And, and Jesus goes, hey, listen, the only reason divorce exists is because of the hardness of your hearts. He's like, this is sort of your fault. But God wants everybody to be in his kingdom. And then... It goes on a little bit, verse 13. The people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus has to say, let the children come to me. This is where that verse happens. Okay, so in the first story, right, they're saying who's in and who's out. Um, Are are we going to be, they're asking a question about rank. We want to make sure we're going to have rank in this new kingdom, and Jesus is like, hey, listen, unless you become, like, a kid, you can't get in, and they're like, okay, 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 but, like, I mean, we're all married, right, so we get dibs, and Jesus is like, that's not what this kingdom is about, and then they have kids, and they're like, get the kids away from him, he's like, did you think I was just kidding about the kids thing? Like, don't shoo the children away from me, like, children have a place in my kingdom, this is a totally different kingdom that he's building here, and then, the next little section is a question about priorities. This is the part with the rich young ruler. You may remember, this guy with a lot of stuff comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, what do I have to do to be a part of your kingdom? Do I have to really give up my stuff? And Jesus goes, you've got to love me more than you love your stuff. And it goes, he goes away really, really sad. So the questions leading up to this story that Jesus tells, again, all of these little paragraphs have to do with okay, where am I going to be in the kingdom? Where am I going to be in the kingdom? When am I going to get mine? Am I going to have identity? Am I going to have rank? And Jesus goes, well, you got to become like a little, a little child. Okay, well, I'll certainly be above divorced people, right? Because I'm married. And he's like, Dude, listen, that's not that kind of kingdom. And they're like, okay, well, we're not letting kids in. He's like, the kids are welcome first. And they're like, okay, well, what about people with riches? And Jesus is like, you gotta, you gotta love me more than you love any of your stuff. And then Peter famously, verse 27, turns to Jesus and goes, we've left everything to follow you, right? Jesus has just said, like, okay, you gotta be willing to leave your stuff, and Peter goes, we've left everything. He's looking for a promotion, It's such famous Peter fashion, right? He's like, well, we've left everything. So if there's a list, we'll be top on the VIP part of it. We're in this kingdom. We're definitely not going to be overlooked. He goes, we've left everything to follow you, exclamation point. What then will there be for us? He's getting excited. He's salivating. And Jesus goes, oh, you need a story. And that's where the, the story starts, the one that we looked at just a moment ago. Verse 1 says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Jesus is using this story to answer the question from 19, verse 27, where Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. Therefore, what do we get? What's in this For me, I'm gonna get to be on the VIP list, right? I'm gonna get to be in charge. I'm gonna get to be an authority. And Jesus says, for the kingdom of God is like a landowner who goes out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Verse two, he agrees to pay them a denarius for the day and sends them into his vineyard. So this landowner goes to the marketplace, which was a gathering place for day laborers. This is very common in that day and age. A man who wanted to work would go there first thing in the morning carrying his tools and wait for someone to hire him. The phrase literally at dawn there means 6 a.m. This is when they did this, was 6 a.m. These workers are hired at 6 a.m. for the working day, and they agree to work for a denarius a day, which is also the common, that's what you pay somebody for a full day's wage in that day and age, a denarius. So this is an entirely normal arrangement so far. Nothing unusual about this. You're in the audience listening to this, and you're like, this all makes sense so far. Nothing about it is unusual yet. Verse 3, about 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. So this is where the story gets a little bit weird, because he goes back out at 9 a.m. Normally, you hire everyone you need for the day at 6 a.m., but he hires a few people at 6 a.m., and then he goes back out and finds more at 9 a.m. The picture is of a landowner that has an inexhaustible supply of work for those who want work, for those who stand idly by. Why not hire them all at 6 a.m.? Maybe because that's going to be the point of the story. Jesus wants his listeners to go, this is weird. This is strange behavior. The landowner promises the earliest workers a day's wage. You see that there. He goes, I'll give you a denarius at the end of the day. The other guys that he adds later, he doesn't tell them what he's going to give them. He just goes, I'll give you whatever's fair. So there's a little bit of mystery around that too. He doesn't give a specific wage, just what is right. He promises to pay them all fairly. He does this repeatedly, right? Verse 5, he goes out again about noon, which is odd. 6 a.m., he hires a group of people. 9 a.m., he goes out and hires some more. 12, he goes out and hires some more. 3 in the afternoon, verse 5, he does the same thing. Verse 6, about 5 in the afternoon. Guys, that's quitting time. Like, if I'm in the people who have already been hired, I'm like, you're bringing more people? Like, it's time. What is this, the cleanup crew? We should be going home. This is dinner time. But he he says to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? He's noticed that they're still waiting with their tools in the marketplace. He's like, what are you doing? And they're like, no one's hired us. And he's like, okay, well, you come on too. He's like, come on to my vineyard. So 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 noon, and again at 5. When evening comes, verse 8, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came forward and each received a denarius. So what you notice here, and this is, by the way, this is common, you pay your workers at the end of the day. So you have a full day of work, you pay them at the end of the day, you bring them forward, you give them what they're owed, but he starts with the ones who were there the shortest amount of time. You notice this. He starts with the ones who come at five. The reason that he does this, I think, is to create a tension in the ones who have been there since six, because they have to stand there and watch all these folks get paid, and, and that's kind of what happens. They begin to develop an expectation. You're getting excited. You're like, okay, if they got a whole denarius for an hour... This happens at six, right? At six, he pays them. At five, he's brought in this new crop of workers. Then at six, he tells the foreman, all right, let's pay them. And the ones who have been there an hour get a denarius, which is the ones who had been there at 6 a.m., that's what they had been promised. So they're like, well, if the one-hour people are getting a denarius, I'm going to get a bunch of denarii." Like, this is, I'm about to make bank. They are dealing with this this expectation, right? And they're going to feel wounded, which they don't know yet, but they're going to feel wounded when when when... When they're paid less or the same amount, I guess, as the others. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected, circle, underline, highlight, to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. It's that word there, expectation. The men hired first early in the day who had worked all day. They got paid exactly what the, what the landowner had promised them, but they expected more. Do you know what we call this? Entitlement. Entitlement. Dr. Timothy Elmore recently wrote about a study that was performed with a group of people surveying the emerging generation of executives and employees They asked the older generation of executives, what one word would you use to describe the emerging generation in the workforce? There was one word that appeared more than any other word in the study. So then they went and asked the emerging leaders in the workforce, what one word do you think appeared over and over in describing you? And they couldn't get it. So they said, we'll give you a hint. It starts with the letter E. The older folks all use this one word to describe the younger folks, and it starts with the letter E. What do you think it is? And they go, exceptional, efficient, enthusiastic, excellent. (laughs) They were shocked to find out that the word was entitled. This was the word the older executives used repeatedly to describe the younger generation. And it's not their fault, the younger generation. Like our generation, my generation is the one to, we put elbow pads and knee pads and helmets on them for everything, right? It's like, oh, let's wrap you in bubble wrap because the sun has rays. We don't want you to get any sun. Like we've created this overprotective culture and we can be swimming in entitlement and not even realize it. I think that's why we need the purity of the word, Entitlement refers to the feeling of having a right to something, the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. And there is a list of things that we unknowingly feel entitled to, isn't there? I started jotting some of these down. We feel entitled to parking spaces, Like, okay, and it's not just me. It can't be, right? But it is me too. I'm not yelling at you. I'm saying it about myself, right? If I go to the gym, this is so ironic. If I go to the gym to run on a treadmill for an hour and there's not a parking spot by the door, I'm like, psh, forget it. You know, it was just stupid. I should park far away. I'm going there to run. But if there's not a parking spot, I get mad because I feel entitled. I pay for this gym membership. I deserve A parking spot. We feel entitled to jobs. Have you seen my degrees? Have you seen where I've been? Have you seen what I'm capable of, right? We deserve or feel entitled to titles, those initials behind our names. We can feel entitled to comfort. We like for everything to be comfortable. We feel entitled to time, to health, food, good quality food, right? We feel entitled to service, to pay, to safety, to making the team or getting equal playing time on the team, even if we're not as good on the team. We can feel so entitled and we can be blind to it. Just like that test that Dr. Elmore did, that that survey that he did about top executives and the older ones and the younger ones, they couldn't see their own entitlement in the mirror. You can never see your own entitlement in the mirror. It's hard to see. You're swimming in it, it's a part of who we are. So, what I thought I might provide for us, me included, is an entitlement test. A way, a surefire way for the rest of our lives to be able to determine what we might feel entitled to. So, here's the question that might reveal it. All right, you ready? For me too. What do you complain about? What do you complain about? Whatever you complain about, that's what you feel entitled to. The more you complain, the more entitled you are. These two things go hand in hand. Complaints point to what we feel entitled to. We're so entitled as a culture that we're swimming in it. We can't see it. We can't recognize it in the mirror. And it's so much a part of every one of us that we read scripture that talks about it and we glaze over the parts that deal with it. It's all throughout the story, this idea if entitlement verse 10 so when those who were hired first when it came to them they expected to receive more there was an expectation there entitlement is focusing on what you deserve you go i deserve this it's being hyper aware of your rights for these guys they felt like they deserved more pay in comparison with the others they felt that they had rights and because they were owed their rights they felt An expectation, and that expectation led to a feeling of entitlement because of the rights that they felt that they had. And you guys, we are Americans living in the 21st century. We love to talk about our rights I think that's what makes this so difficult to to kind of decipher, determine, or to see the entitlement that we have. You guys, I'm all about rights, but we talk about it so much that I think sometimes it makes us walk around with this air of entitlement that we don't know we carry with us. And rights have to do with our entitlement mentality. Philippians 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writing to a church says, do nothing Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We love to read that and we gloss right over that, don't we? What's bothersome is that so many of us have read that verse a thousand times, but we've never stopped to take it seriously. Paul says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing. Do nothing. Nothing means no expectations it's like he said you want to be a part of this new kingdom you want to participate in it then stop doing things with any expectation at all this new kingdom is not transactional do nothing with any kind of expectation and that's attention because like benjamin standing on that bubble in the play place it feels like that's too high a bar to reach i can never attain that I can never achieve that. Sometimes I look at these stories, and I'm like, Jesus is describing the ideal, and I just can't reach it, and, and sometimes like, I feel that, that, that impossibility, right? Where you're like, how am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with this? It's hard. It's hard to wrestle with this. I don't have any easy answers, any easy applications. They are all uncomfortable. And somehow we have to jump from here to there. And all I can do effectively today is try to get you to look down and see how high up we are and the distance from where we are and where we need to be. Many of us, we're troubled by not being recognized. We live in a world where we just, we deserve to be recognized. We deserve to feel seen or valued or understood and we want someone else to tell us we're justified for feeling that way. You are mis- you are misunderstood, right? You are not valued. You, they don't see. They deserve like you should. You should fight for your rights. And we want people to tell us how right we are. And you know what the scriptures instead say? Humble yourself. Ouch. It's not an easy answer, is it? It's uncomfortable. I struggle with it too. First Peter five says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I used to think that that meant he was indifferent to people who were proud. People who walked around with an air of ego or entitlement that God's like, whatever, man, I'm just gonna leave you alone. That's not what it says. It says he opposes the proud. I mean, when you line up on that line of scrimmage and you look up from the ground, that is God on the other side, and that is a bad place to be. You wanna set yourself in direct opposition to God? Be proud. Fight for your rights. It says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, Peter says, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I love that. What I, the way I take that to mean, what I take that to mean is that all of that frustration that you feel about being overlooked, about being right, about being offended or disregarded or being owed something, that creates a frustration inside of us, doesn't it? That anxiety that's created inside of us. Peter says, put all that on God. Don't fight for yourself. Put all that on God and let him take care of it, and he will lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Take all that energy that you're putting into how right you are and put it on him And he will take care of you because he cares for you. And as if that wasn't enough, James says it again in James chapter 4. He will give you more grace, James says, verse 6. That is why the scriptures say God opposes the proud. They're quoting the same scripture. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves, we don't like that part, then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He says, quit fighting for your rights. Quit talking about how rights you are. In the value system of the kingdom, you put all that aside. You can be right and still be wrong. Some of us need to hear that. You can, we can be so convinced of how right we are, and you can be right and still be wrong. You can be right in this kingdom, or you can set all of that aside and be a part of his. And which one do you want to be a part of? And Jesus goes, in my kingdom, we set aside our rights. Why? Because that's what he did. And another, I just, what, I'm, am I looking at this correctly, what Peter says here, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. Just quit. You tired of not being recognized? <laughs> James would say, suck it up, buttercup. Submit. Tired of not getting yours, of being passed by or overlooked? The Bible says, yeah, it's not about you. Suck it up. Get over it. First John 2, 6 John says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived, which begs the question, how did Jesus live? I'm so glad that you asked. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes this. He goes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage so instead he was born as a person laying aside his divine privileges he humbled himself to the point of death and then those famous last five words even death on a cross the only one in history without sin became sin for you it's as if paul is saying all right all right we want to talk about your rights for a minute What you have a right to, you're a 21st century American, you want to talk about your rights? Yeah, the Bible says all who have sinned deserve death. So the only thing you have a right to is dying. And the only one who wouldn't have a right to death is the one who didn't sin. Oh, that's Jesus. And by the way, he set aside his rightness to become wrongness for you. You still want to talk about your rights? John says, you you can continue down that road. Whoever claims to live in him must live this way, right? Because if you claim to live like Jesus, if you claim to be a part of him, then you have to live like Jesus lived. So if you're not going to live like Jesus lived, if you're not going to live like laying aside your rights, that's fine. Just stop claiming to be a Jesus follower. That's what John, I mean, am I reading this? That's what he says. 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. He's like, so, okay, so if you're not gonna submit to others, if you're not gonna humble yourself, if you're not gonna let them have the final word, if you're not gonna let them be right, if you're not gonna let them win, that's fine. Just don't call yourself a Jesus follower. That's hard. I'm t- I mean, there's no easy solutions here. I'm wrestling with this too. I, I, and in praying about this, I just felt like my job today was just to point out the height, the gulf between where we are and where we need to be. Kind of like Benjamin in the play place that day. And it's overwhelming. It's frustrating. It hurts. There's no easy solutions. I was talking with someone this week, that has an electric car. And they were like, man, I can't imagine folks in the working class having to pay these gas prices. I'm really troubled by it. And I thought for a minute and was like, well, then you should give them your car. <laughs> they were like, what are you talking about? Give them my car. Like, I worked hard for this car. And it's like, right, you're entitled to it. I get it. But I don't know what the solution is. Like, I, you know, give them. Your car, I don't know, it's messy, it's offensive. The workers in this story, they're offended, right? They're offended by God's overwhelming generosity to the people who don't deserve it. Verse 11, when they received it, they got their pay, they got what he told them he was gonna pay them. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. After being paid, they take up their complaint with the landowner. They were offended that he gave the men who worked less the equal amount to those who had worked more. And if we're honest, it's easy to sympathize with them. They worked all day while the others were idle. They were baking in the sun while the others were resting in the shade, right? Yet they're paid exactly the same. And the owner answers them, verse 13, "'I am not being unfair to you, friend,' Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? He reminds them he's been completely fair to them. He's done nothing wrong. He's like, hey, I want to give him what I gave you, right? I don't have to ask your permission. He's like, this is this is my field, right? I mean, When you get your own field, you can pay whatever you want. But this one is mine. And I think we need that reminder, don't we? So many of us, we're looking at what other people are being paid by the master. We get jealous or envious. And the master goes, hey, wait, 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 wait. I've been fair to you. Quit looking over there. It's up to me what I do with my stuff. It's not up to you. I'm God. And the last time I checked, he doesn't need our permission Anything. I think we just have to sometimes recognize that. This is all his. We're just servants in the field. What right do we have to question him about anything? So, if you're taking notes, it's a couple of implications that I see from this story. And you guys, I don't know if I had just never studied this story before or never, I don't. I just, I don't know if I've meditated on it like I, like I did this week. This has been tearing me up this week. The Lord's been speaking to me so profoundly through it. It's kind of like I'd never seen it. I don't know if I, you ever have one of those moments where you're reading the Bible and you're like, this is coming so alive to me that I don't even know if I ever saw it before. Like, I, I just can't, it's so much different now, the way that this is speaking to me now than it was before, that it's as if I never read this before. That's how it's been for me this week. A number of implications, and I don't think it's all of them. I think there's many more. The first one is this, that this is personal. If you're writing things down, first implication, this is personal. God says through this story, Jesus says through this story, that the landowner says to the servant, hey, eyes up here. This is between me and you. I paid you what I said I would pay you. And what I pay him is none of your business. So many of us, if we're honest, we love to look over the fence, don't we? We got our own little backyard that God's asked us to be good with. And we look at our backyard, but we're so focused on what other people are doing too that we can get really distracted by it. I have a counselor in my own life, I'm not scared to tell you this, who's constantly having to remind me, hey, eyes on your own backyard, Quit looking over the fence. Because we do that, don't we? We get distracted. We start looking to the left and the right. And God in this story through the landowner is going, hey, this is between me and you. It's got nothing to do with them. Keep it between us. So often I think the Lord would say the same to us. Quit looking over the fence. Eyes on your own homework. Quit cheating. (laughs) Second implication, God is fair and just with all people. God is fair, and I'm choosing my words carefully. He's fair, because he's fair in this story, and just with all people. God is never less than fair, right? He gives the people that were hired at 6 a.m. exactly what he said he would pay them. He's never less than fair, but he does reserve the right to be more than generous. And if we're honest, he's been more than generous with all of us. We don't have to be in his field at all. He doesn't owe us a thing. God is never less than fair, but he reserves the right to be more than generous. Third implication, none receive less, but all receive more. God treats no one unfairly in this story, but he does treat some with far more grace than they deserve right? The guys who had worked an hour got paid the same as the guys who had worked nine hours. Doesn't seem fair. He gives more grace to some, but he gives a lot of grace to all of us. He's, he's never unfair, but he gives us all a lot of grace. Fourth implication is that all disciples are equal. All disciples are equal. The ones who come in late and the ones who started early, they are all equal in his kingdom. He deals with us according to who he is, not according to who we are. He pays them extra because of who he is. He says that. He goes, "I wanted to give them more." That's his answer. Which is a great answer. It's like, "I just wanted to give them more." He pays us according to who he is, not who we are. This is not our field. We don't get to determine how God treats it because it's not ours. Benjamin grabbed a hold of that bar. He launched himself off the circle that was never intended to be launched off of. He grabbed the bar and he began to swing like a gymnast that day. I'll never forget it. And at this point, all of the other parents and their kids, they're all gone from the play place. And I become aware, oh no, this is not going to end well. He sees the gap between where he is and where he needs to be. And he's also seen the Olympics. And he's like, I wonder if I could stick the landing. You know, the stick the landing in the Olympics. Like, even if they mess up, they pretend that they didn't. You know, like, they'll fall, which I'm not saying I root for that, but sometimes it happens. And then they stand up, and they're like, you know, like, it never happened, you know. Benjamin's hanging from the bar, and he's like, I wonder if I could, I wonder if I could swing. And he told me this. He goes, I bet I can swing and then land right on my bottom sitting And I'm like, I bet you can too. (laughs) I didn't have the sense to go, I think that might break a bone. I was like, I don't know. Let's try it. Let's see what happens, right? And it would have worked, except his elbow got in the way. And it immediately snapped in two places. I watched it. I heard it. I scooped him up immediately. And we bolted for the emergency room. I knew immediately that he had broken it. Several hours later, and a couple of steel rods, he's now indestructible. He's like Iron Man, right? He's got this broken elbow, or he had this broken elbow. This is years ago, but he's got a couple of steel rods in there. and Now, because of that break, he's stronger as a result of it. For some of us, that needs to happen this morning. Maybe this story that Jesus tells, it makes us feel exposed We're struggling with entitlement, with humility. Struggling because we're convinced we are right. And as soon as everybody else recognizes how right we are, we're struggling with feeling justified and feeling the way we do. We've been offended. We've been hurt. We've been overlooked, right? And man, I deserve to feel this way. I am right. And maybe you are right. But you can be right and still be wrong. In Jesus' kingdom, because it operates with a whole different set of principles. John would say, just, you know, if you're going to live that way, that's fine. Just don't call yourself a follower of Jesus. Because to literally follow him means you act like him. And when he came, he laid aside his rightness. And I know that sounds harsh. But we've been studying these parables, right? And these parables, you you may remember, we said these were vague stories that Jesus would tell about what it looked like when his kingdom came here. At times, he would tell these parables to conceal the truth. There were people who opposed him, who were looking for him to say something they could use against him so they could kill him. And so he would tell these stories to conceal the truth. They wouldn't be able to understand the truth in it. But those who really dialed down would It would reveal the truth to them. What's interesting is the closer he got to Calvary, the more and more comfortable he became with being overt and direct. Scholars call these the crisis of decision parables. With Calvary on the horizon, he didn't need to stave off his own crucifixion anymore, he didn't have to worry about being misunderstood. He didn't have to worry about being offensive. He could just say whatever he thought, and if they killed him, he was gonna die anyway. And so he began telling these stories that were purposely offensive and would purposely turn up the heat. They're called crisis of decision parables because he wants us to make a decision. He's done with the stories where you can kind of go, yeah, that's interesting, and you walk away thinking about it. He starts telling stories that make you have to go, am I in or am I out? Am I gonna submit to this or am I gonna be out of this? Like am I gonna be a part of his kingdom or am I done with his kingdom? Like he doesn't want any kind of grayness anymore, any kind of lukewarmness. Crisis of decision. This is a hard teaching. But you guys, we've got Easter on the horizon too. We're moving in that direction as a church, as a calendar. It's not very far away, as Jay shared a minute ago. And with it approaching, this seems like a strange strategy, but I thought we would do the same thing Jesus did. We'd start teaching on these parables that were called the crisis of decision ones. When he knew Calvary was coming, he got a bit harsher in his stories. Easter's coming for us. And so I think uh, as it approaches, we have to do the same. We have to make a decision. Am I in or am I out? You can forfeit this and ignore it, this story. You can walk away from it and just kinda go, you know what, not for me, and that's fine. If you do that, I guess. That's what the disciples did. Like, right after he tells this story, he pulls them aside, and he goes, hey, boys, we're going to go to Jerusalem, verses 17 through 19. You'll, if you still got your Bibles open, you'll see this there. He says, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. That's where this is headed. And then verse 20, James and John pull them aside, and they go, hey, Jesus, promise us we'll be one and two in your kingdom. They're still talking about rank. They're still distracted about where they fit this kingdom here operating under those old principles. Where are we going to be in our status, right? And Jesus goes, what are you talking about? And they're like, we want to sit on your right and your left. And he's like, you don't know what you're asking for. And they're like, no, we talked to mom about it. She's good with the two. And Jesus goes, can you drink from the cup that I'm about to drink from? And they're like, oh, we totally, yeah, you know, one and two or two and one. We're good either way. And Jesus goes, you didn't hear anything that I just said. It says when the ten heard about this, they were indignant. You know why? Because they didn't think of it. They're like, oh, man. Now we're arguing about 3 through 12? Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead whoever wants to be, here's what we're doing now. Here's the new kingdom. Whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must become your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He goes, uh, you gotta lay aside your rightness. You You gotta lay it down. And he's like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is a crisis of decision parable. It's time to make a decision. And you can swing off this bar and crash it on the ground. It's going to hurt. It's going to tear up your elbow. But when it gets repaired, you'll be stronger than you were before. Some of you today are struggling, struggling to serve, struggling to remain submissive, struggling with jealousy or envy or humility. I don't know where this story finds you, but what I would say is that if you allow yourself to crash, you can keep being right. You can walk right out of here of your rightness, and you can still be wrong. But you can wa- operate on that principle and go out of here and just assert yourself. Or you can lay it down the way Jesus did. You can allow him to wreck you, and you can be stronger for it in his kingdom. The question is, which kingdom do you want to be a part of? Which kingdom do you want to be right in? It's a crisis. The decision's yours. I struggle with this too, by the way. I I don't want you to think that I'm up here as some holier than thou. I was driving here this morning. I'm weaving in and out of traffic, yelling at people like, oh, they don't know how to drive. You know what I mean? And it was like God was going, are you seriously going to talk about entitlement today? (laughs) It's like, you don't understand. I'm entitled to a good road. Like these people... You know, I'm entitled to people who know how to drive and they don't know how to drive. You know, like I'm weaving in and out and he's like, are you serious? It's like, all right. Well, some of you guys are walking through stuff much serier than, more serious than traffic. Much more difficult. And so I just want to give you the opportunity to lay it down. In a moment we're going to sing but what we wanted to offer you was also a moment of Reflection. A moment where uh, we just kind of inventory our hearts. Where am I in this? What am I struggling with? What am I hanging on to? What rightness am I clinging to? Where am I putting myself first? The whole goal of Sunday mornings is this time of reflection right now. I think. That we come in and we deal with it and we leave changed, we leave lighter or else we're just like the person in James chapter one who looks in the mirror and goes, yeah, I should do something about that. And then we walk away and forget entirely what we look like. I mean, what's the point unless we change something? Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you, so make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.